Well, good morning. Uh, this morning, we'll consider the interaction between the leadership of a church and the congregation. So a few weeks back, we looked at the governance of the local church and specifically how, God, how godly authority fosters unity. And that, that um, thread of unity is what we've been weaving throughout the whole class. And today's class will focus on the congregation's role in relating to its elders. That is, how we as church members promote unity in the church by faithfully submitting to and encouraging our leaders while at the same time protecting the church from doctrinal drift. So how can we as church members relate to our elders in a way that promotes unity and then also brings glory to God? Well, Hebrews 13, 17 answers that question. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So interestingly, the, the writer of Hebrews says that we, the members of the church, are to submit to and obey our leaders because they're giving watch over our souls as those that will have to give an account. And when we obey and submit to our leaders joyfully, it says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. That being that the, the leaders would lead with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So if the shoe were on the opposite foot and the leaders were grumbling and not doing so with joy, that would be uh, a difficult place to submit and to, to follow their leadership. And likewise, the author of Hebrews is telling us we ought to submit and obey our leaders because that makes their job a joy to do. And they joyfully want to give their life in service to Jesus Christ, leading and loving his people. But if we're honest, <clears throat> these words like obey or submit, they don't land well on us in our culture. For we're a nation that prides ourselves on our rugged individualism. And we have heroes like John Wayne and songs like I Did It My Way by Frank Sinatra. In some ways, it's, the question would be, is there anything more un-American than obedience and submission? But I think it's important to point out that these words aren't simply there for maintaining order. And as Christians, we're called to be people of God's word, set apart from the culture and her cues. And the author of Hebrews, Hebrews reminds us that submission is to our advantage. So what's the deeper value of submission? And how is submission so much more than just mere pragmatism? Well, I want us to consider briefly what Paul says to the Philippian church in Philippians 2 beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, it's through submission and obedience that we model the humility of Christ. It's through submission that we maintain unity in the midst of disagreement, demonstrating that our shared calling to Christ is more important than our differences of opinion. And here's the kicker. Ultimately, our trust or confidence in the elders over us is much more than mere confidence in men. 
for the very best of us will fail. Instead, our submission is really a confidence in the Lord Jesus himself. So genuine submission to God and his word expresses itself in natural submission to earthly authorities in so much as those earthly authorities do not call us to violate Scripture. As you remember in our introduction, we talked about that part of our job as the members of the church is to protect from doctrinal drift. So that's why the qualifier, qualifier is there in so much as earthly authority does not call us to violate Scripture. Now, does that mean we become unthinking yes-men? Not at all. The New Testament is clear that the members of the congregation and not the leaders alone are responsible for, up, uh, for the unbiblical teaching in the church. That trusting the leadership doesn't mean we take the opinions of our elders as truth without any question. We're, we are to be like the Bereans and search the scriptures to see if these things are so. We'll talk more about that in the second half of our class this morning about how to approach disagreement with the leadership. But first, let's look at how we can positively encourage the elders in our church making their work a joy. So, making their work a joy. We should make it our aim to follow our leaders in such a way that they can genuinely delight in leading us. Of course, this is complicated by the fact that both we and they are sinners. Nevertheless, our aim should be to obey them so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, as we just read. And one of the best ways that we can cultivate unity in our church body is to make our elders' work a joy. So many unhappy church situations would be resolved if congregations saw their leaders as partners, co-laborers in the church's great calling to reflect the glories of Christ rather than adversaries to overcome. Elders are, in fact, human beings. They struggle with indecision. They find that the decisions that they often need to make exceed often their wisdom and experience. Take the last year and a half or so in navigating a pandemic. There's simply no precedent for what we've gone through and in some ways what we're still going through. We need to be aware that our words, our actions, and our opinions can be discouraging and hurtful by our insensitivity. And so often we function as if we expect perfection from our leaders. And then, when we sense evidence of their imperfection, we feel empowered to deride their leadership. However, remember that you are the object of the leader's careful watch. Hebrews 13, 17, they're keeping watch over your soul. So God values your soul and as such has appointed you leaders to warn you of spiritual danger. So how can you best help them to do their jobs? Well, this morning in the first half of our class, I want us to consider six ways that church members can help, can be a help to our leaders. And these six ways are, uh, are going to be pulled from a book by Wayne Mack and Dave Swavely called Life in the Father's House, a member's guide to the local church. So first... Believe in Jesus Christ and walk in obedience. So the first point may seem obvious, but it's worth mentioning that our elders are encouraged each, by each and every church member's belief in the gospel and obedience to God's word. The Apostle John expressed these sentiments 
when he says in 3 John verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. There's joy for the elders in seeing evidences of grace in church members as they faithfully follow Christ in obedience. There's joy in seeing God's people use their gifts to build up the body, as we're told in Ephesians 4. There's joy in seeing members specifically share the love of Christ with one another. There's joy in seeing the saints persevere in the faith through difficult times. And this is one of the ways in which, just as a point of application, when you are encouraged um, by evidence of grace in another, share that with that other member. Share ways in which you've been encouraged by evidences of grace in their life. And then also be willing to share that with your elders because this is part of what we like to do on Sunday evenings when we have a testimony of grace or an evidence of grace in somebody's life. Of course, how will your elders be encouraged by these things if we keep it to ourselves? So let them know what God is doing in your life. And when they ask you how you're doing, tell them. I can be so guilty on Sunday mornings of passing other members of the church with the normal, how you doing? Doing well? How about you? And then I, but I'm five feet past them because I, I'm greeting them. And I actually genuinely do care how they're doing. But I guess I don't care enough in that moment to stop and to say, hey, how are you doing this morning? And to listen. And so the Spirit convicts me whenever I hear that pause when somebody really, something they want to share, and I've got to stop and go back and say, hey, I'm so sorry. I, I was in a hurry. Really, how are you doing? Because at the end of the day, uh, it's a joy for me to get to be a pastor at God's church, and if the, if the members of the church don't feel like I have time for them, then they're not going to be apt to share with me what's going on in their life. And so, but again, we've already mentioned, I don't want to sound like an excuse. We are human, and sometimes, you know, I'm, I've got 10 things on my mind, and but that's not an excuse. Part of what I have the responsibility of doing is slowing down and caring for uh, the members of this church. So when they ask how you're doing, tell them. Tell them the encouraging things, but also tell them the things that you need prayer or even counsel about. So believe in Jesus Christ and walk in obedience. Number two, cultivate and persevere, I'm sorry, and preserve unity in the body. Cultivate and preserve unity in the body. So Paul wrote about this to the Philippians when he said, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded or of one mind, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So like the Apostle Paul, our elders derive joy from a unified church body. Unified in spirit, unified in purpose, unified in love. Also, James wrote, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness in James chapter 3, verse 18. So a, a congregation of peacemakers is a great encouragement to its leaders. So how can we promote unity by being peacemakers? Well, first, we act toward others in love. Remember what Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Love each other deeply. This is part of the reason why you have a member directory, to be praying for 
the other members of this church, to grow your affections, to grow your love for the other members of this church, to undergird them by praying scripture over them, to get to know the fami- with familiarity their faces, so that for those that you don't know, when you do meet them in person, you have a context. You could put a name with the face. You can even say, hey, oh, that's wonderful. I prayed for you last week. So love one another deeply. Second, remember in the midst of disagreement, while our opinions are temporary, those with whom we disagree are eternal. Our opinions are going to go away, but those for whom we are disagreeing with and the way in which we disagree, those those people are eternal in the sense that they have been granted eternal life in Christ Jesus. So be careful lest you act in such a way that you tempt your brother or sister to sin in anger or resentment. Third, encourage others to trust our elders. True, our leaders aren't perfect, but we should still be biased towards trust and not cynicism. And if you wonder whether or not you tend to lean towards trust or cynicism, ask someone. Ask someone that you trust Give them permission to be honest with you in their assessment and ask them if you're typically a trusting or a cynical person. And if you carry with you a spirit of cynicism, then you will not be an encouragement to others to trust our leaders. So pray that God would root that out in you. Lord, I tend towards cynicism. Help me to be a peacemaker. Pray that scripture over your own life and ask others to help you in it. Number three, pray for our church leaders. 2 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11, Paul writes, On him, that is Christ, we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answers to the prayers of many. So this passage gives us two really good reasons to pray regularly for our church leaders. First, They've been given a formidable task to act in human weakness to shepherd a congregation of sinful people. I wonder if we've really thought much about that for our pastors. That they've been given a formidable task by God to act in human weakness to shepherd a congregation of sinful people. Empowered by the Spirit, yes. And according to the Scripture, They are genuinely helped by our prayers. Additionally, we should pray for our leaders in the church so that we may rejoice and thank God when our prayers on their behalf are answered. So this in turn will bolster our faith and our joy in Christ as we see our prayers answered for our leaders. You'll often hear on a Sunday evening service uh, us being led as a body to pray for upcoming elders meetings, to pray for our elders in the midst of those meetings. Number four, express your concern for them. Later in 2 Corinthians, Paul describes how this felt for him. He says, For when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. We had been harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside. Fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me 
your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5-7. through 7. Sometimes we forget that the Apostle Paul was a human. We can tend to over-spiritualize him. But this passage, passage here is bleeding with human emotion. And we can commit the same error with our elders. So if the apostle can go from this body of mine had no rest to my joy was greater than ever, then we would do well to remember that our encouragement might be God's comfort to a leader who's struggling with discouragement. And if you're not that type of person who's often prone to make encouraging comments, then you might want to consider ways in which you can be moving in that direction towards greater encouragement, to not withhold encouragement from those who are giving care over your soul. Number five, seek their counsel and gratefully accept their reproof. Seek their counsel and gratefully accept their reproof. So the advice of church leaders, whether solicited or unsolicited, should be something we value in our lives. Do you value the counsel of your pastors? What kinds of things might one seek counsel from their pastors on? What about matters of future employment? What about changes in work that will materially affect or impact your ability to gather with the saints? Parenting concerns, financial strains, marital strains, questions on theology, questions on doctrine. The pastors and elders want to help you guide, they want to help you, want to guide you through all of these things that I've listed above. But we must be willing to make our lives known to those giving watch over our soul, the shepherds of our church. It wasn't until the recent past that I had really considered for a college student graduating or for a young professional who's going to get a promotion, you know, I'd not not really considered how we ought to be considering where they're going and whether or not they're going to be able to lock arms with a faithful church. I think far too often we think about our careers and we go where the job is and we think, I'll figure out church when I get there. And if you end up in a place where there aren't good churches, then you're setting yourself up for a life of spiritual difficulty in places where you're not able to grow in ways in which the Lord would have you to grow. Now, is he sovereign over all things? Absolutely. But at the same time, how much more so could we benefit by saying to our, to our pastors or to our small group leaders, hey, I've been offered this job or I've got these three job offers. Um, you know, man, help me think through and pray through where do we know there are good, faithful, gospel-preaching churches? And maybe that would be the thing that would drive the decision. I just don't think we've normally thought in those terms within the church. I think we think in terms of to say, well, I have this question about the Bible, or I have this question about our practice. But when it comes to even areas of financial strain or marital or or strain with our children, I think we far too quickly throw up our guards and say, ah, that's not really their business, Um, or I don't want to burden them them with that, or I'm just going to make this decision on my own. And I would have you to know that I think God's word would tell us that we have all that we need as pertains to life and godliness in his word. And so those that are giving spiritual watch over your soul 
ought to be the ones for which you can go and seek counsel in every area, every area of your life. Two comments at this point. First, remember that you have the responsibility to make known to your shepherds what's going on in your life. This imagery may be helpful. A sheep that hides its limp will get no special, atten- special care from its shepherd. The sheep that hides its limp is in danger for its prey. So our pastors must know what's going on in our lives, and it's a good habit to make sure that at least one elder is aware of what you're struggling with, what big decisions are on the horizon. And with that, what's discouraging to you? So talk regularly with the leaders of your church, the elders as well as the life group leaders and those on staff. And just a a point of application, a point of prayer, this is why the elders are regularly praying for more elders. Because there's a lot of members, and if we, if we want to do what we're saying we want to do, then we need more faithful men who can shepherd more of the body. With a growing church and with needs all around us, we need more men who can take on and shoulder these types of loads. And yet we want to be careful to obey God's word and not be hasty in the laying on of hands. To not be quick to put somebody or to, to present somebody as an elder candidate before they ought to be presented. So pray for your elders and think in ways in which you can open your life up to your elders to give you counsel. And of course, treat godly rebuke as precious and worthy of careful consideration. Proverbs 9.8, do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So again, consider, take seriously these words of reproof or encouragement from your elders and from one another. Make it a matter of prayer that you would grow uh, you in maturity in Christ so that you'll react positively to reproof when you're encountered with it rather than defensively. Ask others, how do you tend to react when criticism comes your way? Even if it's meant to be Godly criticism, right? It's not just somebody throwing criticisms at you. Somebody's just giving you encouragement for ways you can improve. How do you tend to react? Do you get defensive? Or do you thank your brother or sister for bringing that to you? Do you tell them that you're grateful for their counsel? Number six, believe the best about their character and their decisions. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, Paul writes, Now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So we should trust our elders without any clear reasons to the contrary. And we should work hard to not presume upon their motives unless there's some objective basis for doing so. So often, we don't get upset by what's done, but why it's done which of course is totally presumptive unless the person or persons tells us why they did what they did. So often decisions are made about which we have incomplete knowledge and it's dangerous to place much confidence in our opinion or what should have been done without any conversations with those that are making those decisions. It's also hazardous to presume that sinful reasons for why things were done. So we project or we assume things were done for, um, for personal gain rather than for the good of the whole. 
And our God knows the heart of man. We should never presume that we understand his motives unless he tells us. So we've come to then to a place that would be helpful for us to discuss godly criticism of church leaders. So our leaders are fallible human beings. They're imperfect, just like you and me. So we should all remember to act in humility, in love and kindness, when we approach a leader with appropriate, constructive criticism. We should be careful to not be overly critical or come forward with criticism too frequently. But even so, there are appropriate occasions for godly critique And we should not abdicate our responsibility in this area. Remember this section of our own church covenant. We will lovingly guard one another from the deceitfulness of sin. Giving and receiving admonition and encouragement in humility and affection. Helpfully, the church covenant is right on the inside cover of your member directory. That's a great place just to be praying Use that uh, church covenant to pray things like this for us, for the leaders, for our members, for all of us. So this clause applies to church leaders just as much as it does to church members. We should work hard to cultivate a culture where loving, thoughtful criticism is given carefully and welcomed freely. Proverbs 25.11, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. So six ways we can obey scriptural commands to respect those who serve us as leaders, particularly the elders, and to make their work a joy. Walk in obedience to Christ. Cultivate and preserve unity. Pray for church leaders. Express your love for them. Seek their counsel and accept their reproof and trust their character and decisions. Any questions or comments about those six six charges we've received before we get into that second half of our class on what do we do when we disagree? Questions or comments? All right, so what do we do? What do we do when we disagree? That'll be the second half of our class. Let me say at the outset that we're not talking today about what we do when an elder is in sin. We'll save that for a different time. Inevitably, there will be times for all of us when our elders make decisions that we don't agree with. And our response will go a long way toward either promoting unity or fostering dissent. I think even that's a helpful lens to look through. Is what I'm thinking or what I'm about to say, is it going to foster unity or is it going to foster dissent within the body? It goes back to what your parents told you. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So you may see a diagram like this one, but with one axis measuring how clear an answer to a particular question is and the other measuring its seriousness, we're going to consider four quadrants in thinking through what we do when we disagree. So starting in that upper left quadrant, we have those things that are clear in Scripture, but not serious. And honestly, it's hard to think of anything in this category because if God has decided that something is important enough to be clear in the Bible, then we better conclude that it's serious too, right? We don't 
We don't have those categories clear in Scripture, but not serious. So moving then to that lower left, we have matters that are neither serious nor clear. For example, which brand of computer should we purchase for the administrative staff? Should our corporate worship start at 10 or 10.30? What font should be used when we project lyrics? It may serve us well to have some discussion on these issues, but a church would do well to submit to the decisions of their leaders who are likely delegating many of these types of, dis- of, of uh, questions to staff or other church members. So if you have an opinion about such an issue and you feel free to speak up, but not in a way that's divisive or unloving. So church unity is far more important than our preferences and opinions on such matters as neither serious nor clear in that quadrant we've just talked about. Now then we're going to move then to the right where the questions get more challenging. So what about issues that are quite serious but not at all clear? Quite serious but not at all clear. Should so-and-so be recognized as an elder? Should we allocate certain funds in our budget for certain ministries? Should we require masks to be worn on our campus? It's these situations that a congregation should listen carefully to their elders and give them the benefit of the doubt. This is one of the very reasons God has placed them over us, to lead us. Now that doesn't mean that some of these decisions are not difficult for us to accept. So how are we to disagree in a godly way about things that are far from clear, but the implications for the church remain serious? Let's consider a few suggestions. First, we have an important role to play, and that includes bringing information to the elders. So the elders aren't aware of every need in the church, nor do they have perfect intel on every matter. In the matter of elder or deacon nomination, for example, if a man is put forth as a nominee before speaking up publicly against that nominee, it's best to speak with an elder about your reservations. The elders want to know if there's good reasons for us to reconsider the decision to put a man forward. And in this way, you can play a helpful role by bringing this information to the elders' attention. But when should we trust the elders with what they do with that information? So when we've, we have a concern, we bring it to them, we talk it through with them, we have also to trust in the decision that comes on the other side of that, unless there is some blatant sin that we're aware of. And prayerfully, the elders would never put forward uh, an elder or a deacon that there is blatant, unresolved sin in their lives. But the elders do want to hear from you on these matters of any concerns you would have. This is why we nominate uh, often with a full quarter between uh, a nomination of an elder and a vote of an elder is we want you, the body, to have plenty of time to get to know that man, to bring any concerns you have or ask any questions that you've want to, you, you would like or be helped by having answered before we would ask you to submit to that brother as one of your shepherds. Second, if you disagree with the decision that the leadership has made, sit down and talk with them and seek understanding. The elders are more than willing and eager to do this. They see their spiritual care for the congregation as their utmost duty in the church. 
So give yourself full opportunity to be persuaded by them and approach the matter with a teachable spirit. So what happens if you have a meeting with an elder and you still come out disagreeing in the matter of serious but not clear? Well, I want you to know that's okay. Every Christian is not going to agree on everything all the time. You can still trust someone and disagree at the same time. This is becoming a more foreign concept in today's church because of the influence of our culture. This really is where the rubber meets the road with regard to following Hebrews 13, 17. It's one thing to submit to leadership when you're enthusiastically in agreement. It's another thing to submit to them when you don't see eye to eye. But remember, we submit because we're acting in faith and we trust Christ to rule over us by his word and by his spirit through earthly leaders. And it may be helpful if you're not aware that our elders actually function in the same way. When the elders come to a decision and we've had full opportunity to speak from our concerns or reservations about a decision and the elders then feel like, okay, we've heard all the different sides. We, we have to move in a direction uh, led by the Spirit, prayerfully considered, uh, thoroughly talked through, and we have to think, call something to a vote. Uh, once we vote on it, we leave that room as a unified body of elders because we want to model this very thing for the church that we're not going to agree on every single thing. But our unity is greater than my firm commitments about something in in, in any particular matter. So again, we're not talking about things that are sinful. We're talking about things that are serious, but not clear. So just know that your elders are hoping and prayerfully modeling submission to the congregation. Third, be careful how you discuss these issues with others. For issues in this category of serious but not clear... Our unity as a church will bring greater glory to Christ than making uh, an optimal decision. So don't go behind the elders. Don't lobby for support in the congregation and try to overturn their decision. Don't deride the elders' decision in your conversation with others and so risk making it more difficult for them to trust the elders. And when you do speak about your preference in such matters, do so with grace, with kindness, and humility. It's of the utmost importance. And it's unfortunate how many churches have their reputations as those of full of dissension and divisiveness when it comes to decision making. Remember those words in Hebrews 13, 17 that we started with. Finally, when others attempt to deride leadership in conversations with you, explain to them that they should talk directly to their elders. In other words, don't give ear to gossip. If they have something that they want to talk about, then point them to talk to the elders with their concerns. There are good and bad ways to critique those decisions. Now then, let's consider the last category on this matrix where the issues are clear and also serious. So this is where the congregation becomes becomes the last line of defense against bad decisions by the elders. It's on these issues of discipline and doctrine where the apostle appeals in the New Testament for the church to act. Think about the Corinthian church. Would that the church at Corinth continue 
to accept in its fellowship a man in serious sin. Would that the churches of Asia add to the requirements of the gospel. Here is where the congregation must act. And at this point, the reputation of Christ would be better served by our sticking to the right answer than through maintaining visible unity. But even here, questions abound. How would this action take place? And how can we fulfill our biblical role as a congregation while tending to the reputation of Christ in our midst and the souls of whom we disagree with? Well, this should happen. This is the way it should happen in the congregation. Would vote down the motion in question by the elders. Again, if that motion is clearly unbiblical, in some extreme situations, they should also call for the resignation of the elders. But throughout this, a church has to keep several things in mind. First, a church is not a place for secret campaigning or canvassing. We talked a little bit about this in the last point. If a member of the congregation thinks the elders are crossing a line of discipline or doctrine, he or she should be clear with the elders about their reservations. Second, if there's an issue in this category where the elders are advocating a clearly unbiblical position, this is a good time to seek counsel of godly leaders of other churches, preferably those that know our church and our elders well. Simply because the congregation is the final authority on matters of discipline and doctrine in no way insinuates that they can't or shouldn't seek counsel outside the walls of this church. Do so with grace, with humility, with a gentle spirit, one that has in its mind the preservation of the gospel witness and the name of Jesus Christ himself, not your raw emotions of how angry you are, but in love you're seeking to uphold and protect the gospel of Jesus Christ and Jesus' name in this place. Third, we must take great care to protect the name of Christ in the midst of what we may dwell or what may well be a heartbreaking disagreement. Sometimes you read a story in the paper or online that church members have contacted outside media about a disagreement in their church. Presumably they're doing so to rally support or place pressure on their opponents. That's a terrible way for us to go about these types of disagreement. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who lambasted the church at Corinth for taking disagreements between church members to civil court. Imagine how he would have reacted at the trumpeting of disagreements of an entire church to the world at large. Now, I would add that unfortunately there have been recent reports of churches covering up sexual abuse within their walls. And let me be clear, if a pastor, church leader, staff member, or anybody else in leadership is accused of criminal behavior, then we cannot hide behind a spiritual veil of secrecy. It is only right that matters of this nature be brought before the civil authorities, and we must be clear on that. Of course, we pray that by God's grace, we will never have to watch or walk such precarious roads. But should that day come, let us take hope in the amazing way that he's preserved us as a body for almost 70 years 
And let us rejoice that God's purposes will triumph regardless. So any questions about the ways in which we can seek um, action when we disagree? Any comments or questions on the way we can seek to disagree in a godly way? All right, I'm going to close with the words of a pastor, Edward Griffin, speaking to his church on his retirement. And these words, would, we would do well to listen and to take heed as we consider our own relationship with our leaders. Pastor writes, For your own sake and your children's sake, cherish and revere him who has chosen to be your pastor. Already he loves you, and he will soon love you as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. It will be equally your duty and your interest to make his labors as pleasant to him as possible. Do not demand too much. Do not require visits too frequent. Should he spend in this way half of the time which some demand, he must wholly neglect his studies, if not sink early under the burden. Do not report to him all the unkind things which may be said against him, nor frequently his presence allude to opposition, if opposition should arise. Though he has a minister of Christ, consider that he has the feelings of a man. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for those that you put in authority over us. We're grateful, Father, for this church's commitment an aim to, to take the time necessary to rightfully examine the life and doctrine of any who would shepherd this body. And God, we do pray this morning, not only for our own responsibilities within living in this body in a way that brings unity as we think about church leadership, how we might submit and obey to them Father, equally we pray that you would protect and uphold the life and doctrine of all of our shepherds. That you would do so, Lord, knowing that they would have confidence that their joy is to shepherd those whom you've given them care over as those that will stand account before you in how they shepherded. Father, we pray that you would protect them from taking their cues from how they feel, but Lord, from how you have called them and equipped them with all that they need. So, Father, pray that their confidence would be in you. We pray that their trust would be in you. We pray that their hope would be in you. And, God, we pray that they would lead with joy, with diligence, with great care for this body. And, Father, we pray that we would submit and obey to our leaders with joy, with joy knowing that it brings joy to you, and it builds up and encourages your church. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen.